Today we will finish or maybe finish chapter 20 in the book of Luke as Jesus flips things on the religious leaders. You remember that this whole chapter is about conflict and they are malicious. They want to come after him. They're not just trying to get Jesus with got, gotcha questions. They are malicious and evil. They want to hand him over to the governor. They want to kill him. They want to get him out of the way in the most humiliating way that they can so that his teachings will not continue to spread. Obviously, they are successful, not by, by trapping him with questions, but they obviously become successful. This is Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday or so. And by Friday, he will be arrested and on the cross. He will be crucified by Friday. And they think in a way that is so shameful that people will turn away from him. But in reality, this is God's plan to set up salvation for the entire world. God's going to use the, the wicked and evil heart of men and suffering to bring about salvation. And it's a perfect picture of the way that God uses evil and suffering for his own purposes. Our God is a God that works all things together for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. The question, as Jesus turns the table now, he's like, I got a question for you. He doesn't say that, but he does say, I have a question for you. And he gives him the question. It's related to the question that he just received from the Sadducees that we covered last week. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And so Jesus said, in the burning bush passage, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He didn't say he was the God, therefore they are living. So they were living because of the reference that God said, I am the God of Abraham. So they were living. And so he says, he is the God of the living. So they were alive. Now he responds in a similar way with a similar question having to do with the Messiah. Because there are people today who believe that the Messiah is, is just a person. That he's a man that comes on the scene. He's given particular power by God, but he's not God. The question is, does the Bible reveal to us that the Messiah would be God? In that way, this Bible study tonight is a little theological. Some of our Bible studies are a little bit more practical. Some are a little more theological. But don't think that the theological don't have any place in the practicality of our lives. Because once we know something is true and we're able to defend that truth, then we can stand on the truth when it turns to practical things. And that's the case here in this particular section. And then Jesus is going to warn the people around them about the religious leaders. And there's a part of me that wants to wait until next week to cover that because I would like to use that to warn about religious leaders that are out there today that are teaching false teachings, religious leaders that, that are, are not only teaching false teachings, but have new philosophies that are creeping into the church. And it's unfortunate that they are creeping into the church, but they are. And um, so, so we'll see. We'll talk about that no matter what in, in, in time, but this would be a place that we can do it. So let's start with this first little section as Jesus turns the table and asks them a question. So he said to them, you remember, they wouldn't the scribes said, you've answered well. The scribes were the theologians of their days. The scribes said, you've answered well. And they asked him no further questions. They stopped trying to trap him. And so Jesus is like, and he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, 
set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Now, there's two aspects to this question that Jesus asked them. The first one is that they are a very patriarchal society and they have been from the Old Testament times. We don't live in a patriarchal society. That's where the oldest grandpa or great grandpa is in charge of the family. And that was the Old Testament. And that was in the biblical days. You had real respect for your elders. Now, I don't know if there's so much respect for the elders. Get to a point where you're, you're, you're kind of like older and it's like, eh, you really don't have much to say. But in their day, they did. And it was that older man that ran the family. And when he passed away, it was the oldest guy then who would take care of the family. We have a hard time really comprehending that. And so there is no way, the Bible tells us that Sarah called Abram Lord. The word is Adonai. It wasn't the name Yahweh. And I'll talk about all of that here in a moment. It wasn't the name Ahweh. It was Adonai. And a son might call his father or grandfather Adonai. They might call him Lord. But there's no way that the patriarch of the family would ever turn around and call one of their sons Lord. There's no way that any male in the family would call one of their sons Lord because it's set up to think the older are in charge over the younger and you give respect to the older over the younger. Personally, I think we should return to this. Now that I'm a little bit older, now that I would like to control my sons a little bit better than I am right now, I'd like all of my children to have to ask me permission. And my, my children-in-laws to ask me permission. I'm looking around here to see if Adam's around here anywhere. My children to ask me permission to be able to do things. I think I could help them. I really do. I think I could help them out. I think at this age, going through what I've gone through, I might be able to help them out. So we want to vote. We want to try to make that the, the thing now, the new thing. Somehow I don't think it would happen. So Jesus is going to play off of that. But just as in the last question, Jesus proved that Abraham was alive by the way that God responded to him, Jesus also proves that the Messiah is alive before he is born while he is responded to. So this is a question of divinity. It's not just a question of the superiority of the Messiah over David, but we're talking about the, the, the divinity of the Messiah. And that is the title of this message. The title of the message is a statement by David that proves Jesus is God, the divine Messiah. And then another title, the case for the Messiah's deity. That's the idea. So let's break it down here a little bit. So he says to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, in one of the other gospels, Jesus says to them, who is the Christ? Now, the Christ is the promised Messiah. God had told Abraham back in the book of Genesis that his seed, one of his descendants, was going to bless all nations. That's the promise of the Messiah, that through Israel, God raised up the nation of Israel, that he could bring someone through them who was going to bless all nations. And by the time we get into the book of Revelation, we see that Every tribe and tongue and nation and people is there before God, worshiping him that have come through the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah literally means the anointed one. 
So he is the anointed one. Anytime you're reading in the Old Testament and there's a passage that says the Lord has anointed me, you're probably reading a messianic passage. And these are not our choices to make. We don't get to say, well, I think that's a messianic passage or not. Traditionally, they are either messianic or they are not. And when we say traditionally, we don't mean modern day. Because there are a lot of rabbis today who want to deny that certain passages are not messianic. I had a rabbi tell me one time when I was in Israel that Isaiah 53 is not messianic. And I was like, that's you speaking? Because we have writings dating back before the time of Jesus identifying Psalm Isaiah 53 as a messianic psalm. So it isn't determined on what people say today. It's determined historically. What has been messianic passages? Did they see them as messianic? And the amazing thing about these messianic passages is when you, now that we know that Jesus was or is the Messiah, you go back to those messianic passages and you see that he fulfills each one of those passages, that they were actually speaking of him and he fulfills them in a perfect way. The Messiah, the promise that he would crush the head of the serpent, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15, and that he would bruise his heel, gives us a foreshadowing. It's blurry for sure, but a foreshadowing of the cross where Jesus would lose his life but be resurrected, but he would destroy the power of the enemy. And we are living in a time when the enemy's power has been destroyed. So he says to them, who is the Christ? And they answer in Matthew's gospel with one word, the, well, with one phrase, the son of David. Who is the Christ? The son of David. Because God had said, that through, uh, that I will bless you and one of your descendants will set upon your throne. Now, anytime you see in the gospels, like when, when the blind beggar, he's making his way into Jerusalem the last, the last week and he gets near Jericho and there's a blind beggar who starts saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. That's a statement of faith from this blind man. He's recognizing Jesus as the Messiah by calling him the son of David. And they would have seen that clearly. And so Jesus stops and the son of David, the Christ, heals a blind man, which is one of the passages in the Old Testament that God has anointed him that he would heal the blind. The gospel would have the poor preach to him and would heal the blind. And we see a real picture of the Messiahship in that, in that exact account. So then Jesus responds when they say the son of David, how can they say the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, and this is Psalms 110, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? So first of all, in a patriarchal sense, this is why they had such trouble with it. They weren't able to answer it because they would not have done that. It's like a cultural thing that we don't get because we're not there. But also when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, said at my right hand, and until I make your, en the, uh, and until I make your enemies your footstool, said at my, until I make your enemies your footstool, he was speaking of the pre-existence of Jesus, the Messiah. The one who is going to be Lord, that enemies are going to be his footstool, is the Messiah. And so he's speaking of the Messiah pre-existing. 
And if the Messiah preexisted, then he isn't just a man, he is God. Now, if that's the case, does that fit the other passages in the Bible that speak about the Messiah? I want to give you, what do I have here? Five. I want to give you five passages that tell us that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be God, that he is deity. The first is that the, the Messiah's days would be from everlasting. And this is a Christmas passage, and you know it well. It's the passage about Bethlehem. The wise men go to Herod, what a mistake that was, and say, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? He gathers together all of his uh, religious counselors, and they say in the book of Micah 5.2 that Bethlehem is the place that he would be born. So here's the verse, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Epaphrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. By the way, Epaphrath isn't the way that you pronounce that, but it doesn't matter. It, it, it's really funny to me when people try to pronounce it the exact Hebrew way. Things sound kind of funny in Hebrew because they, they, use, they use different sounds than we do. They use the spit sound in a lot of their words, and we don't do that. So when they try to say it like exactly like the words are, it's just, it's just funny. And um, it's like if you were just talking and you use a, a Spanish word and all of a sudden break into a heavy Spanish accent. It's like, I don't know. I don't know how, why that exactly. How does that happen? I don't know. So you Bethlehem, you Paphrath, you just got to say it with confidence so no one knows. You people are just like, yeah, must be it. That must be the way it's pronounced. But you Bethlehem, you Paphrath, though you are a little among the thousands of Judah, five miles away from Jerusalem, is the city of David, which is Bethlehem. It's where David would keep sheep, his, the sheep, keep watch over the sheep at night. Though you are small among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler over Israel. Everyone would know, this is talking about dozens of passages that speak of the Messiah sitting on a throne forever. He is on the throne of David forever. He will rule and reign for the thousand year period, but he will be the king on the throne of David forever. And it says then, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now it adds on this little tag to this passage. Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. This means before he's born in Bethlehem, he exists. Just as Jesus is saying, he said, my Lord said, uh, his, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my feet until I make the end of your footstool. He is preexistent. Now, when I was in Jerusalem and our guide had said that there's, there's, a, there's a gentleman in the, uh, the Jewish quarter of, Israel, of uh, Jerusalem. This is, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I always say 10, it's probably 15 or 18 years ago. But, um, and he wants to interact with your crowd. He, he wants to interact with your, the people from your tour. Um, and I said, well, let me meet him first. I want to meet him, I want to talk to him. And uh, so as I'm going over, the guy tells me, this guy just wants to debate you, that's all. This guy just wants to debate. So I get in and sure enough, he wants to debate. And, and I finally say, as far as Jesus being the Messiah, first of all, it says in Micah 5 too, his days are from everlasting. And that means that it's divinity, he's divinity. And he said, no, it means that his soul was made before and God has made all souls before. So that was his ad hoc argument. I've shared with you what ad hoc is. Ad hoc is when you make up an argument. It doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong when you give an ad hoc argument, but it does mean you have no evidence for it. So when you're talking to someone and off the top of their head, they just start to give you arguments 
They're making uneducated guesses. There's no evidence for it at all. They haven't looked it up. Those are ad hoc. They might stumble over the right answer. Who knows? But, but generally, ad hoc arguments are the worst arguments out there because they're uneducated. It's better to go, let me look, rather than just come up with something. So there's no evidence that there could have been that God created spirit babies. The Mormons might try to tell you that, but there's no evidence for it. There's no passage in the Old Testament that could even be construed that God created people beforehand and that that's what he was referring to here. This is a reference to the Messiah. He is the one to be ruler over Israel. His goings forth are from old, from everlasting. He is the pre-existent one. Jesus said, I am in the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I am the one who was alive, is alive and will be alive. The one who was dead and will live forevermore. So he is from everlasting and he goes to everlasting. Melchizedek, which is at the very least a type of Christ. I'm not persuaded that it isn't Christ in the Old Testament. I'm not saying for sure, okay? I'm just saying I'm not persuaded. It says that Melchizedek had no beginning of days nor end of days. And Jesus is a high priest, according to Hebrews, by Melchizedek. So Jesus had no end of days and no beginning of days. Now, how can that be? When I was a kid, used to lay out in the lawn in Albuquerque we had lawns and look up at the stars and I would think where does the universe begin it had to begin but it couldn't begin it had to begin but it couldn't begin and it had to end but it couldn't end and it had to end but it couldn't end and then I think about God God had to have a beginning he had to have a start but he couldn't have a start but he had to have a start he had to have an ending but he couldn't have an ending and just would wrestle over that whole concept God created the time space matter continuum he is outside of it and he created those things and he's not bound by them. And so he, his days are from everlasting. So it speaks of God. The second is Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. This is a Christmas passage as well. And it makes sense. We're talking about the incarnation. That's what Christmas is. That's our Christmas celebration. It says, um, this is that the child would grow up and be anointed to be God. Remember the word Messiah is the anointed one. And so here's what it says, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. There would be a, born, a child who would be born for people. I anyone in the world who will call him his name. There would be a, a child who would be for us. He would be given. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And this is, this is an Old Testament prophecy. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. That's the messianic work. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. This child who would be born will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And there's a way in which he's like the Everlasting Father. So we have the Trinity spoken of here, the complexity of God in this verse, that he's called Mighty God and Everlasting Father because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one. And here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. That's Deuteronomy 6.4, I think, or 4.6. I think it's 6.4. Um, Prince of Peace and the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from this time forward forevermore, the zeal of the Lord, the Lord of hosts will perform this. It becomes obvious to us as you read this gift that is a child, that he is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, and he is called the mighty God, everlasting father. Now, again, 
I brought this passage up to some Jehovah Witnesses who had come to my door and they said, well, it doesn't say that he's almighty God. It just says that he's mighty God. In, in the Jehovah Witness theology, how many mighty gods are there in it? And later on in Revelation chapter one, Jesus says, I am the almighty. The first, the last, the alpha, the omega, the almighty. So I don't believe, again, it's like Mormon theology everywhere here, right? You got the spirit babies that are born beforehand that then get bodies. And here you have, uh, and, and here you have the idea that there are a bunch of gods because in Mormon theology, you can become a God and get your own planet. You gals can't, I'm sorry. I'm used to talking about our benefits in Christ. There are, there's no male and female in Christ. You guys can have your own planet and a lot of wives to populate that planet. That's just Mormon theology. I'm just giving to you what, what they say. Uh, obviously, it's not true. <laughs> and the next one, we'll move on. And he will be called the Lord of righteousness. Jehovah, I don't know if I'll get this, this word right, Titsakanu. Jehovah Titsakanu. Close, close enough. All right, the Lord our righteousness. And in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord, that I will rise up to David a branch. So coming out of David's line will be a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called. And we can all argue, right, that this is the Messiah. I mean, we can all see that. I guess someone could argue that he isn't. You can do it if you want to, but it's pretty evident so far. What is the name of this Messiah? The Lord, our righteousness. Now the word for Lord there, when you're reading the Old Testament, there's two words that are translated Lord. There's the Hebrew word Adonai or Adon, which means Lord. And there is the Tetragrammaton. The Tetragrammaton, it goes a little theological, is the, is the name of God that is the Y-H-W-H in Hebrew. I, I love the way it's written. I love the way it looks. I love where we're talking about making t-shirts with the tetragrammaton on it. And people will be like, what is that? That's the name of God. And Hebrew scholars are pretty confident that it's pronounced Yahweh. They're not 100%, but they're pretty confident. There is no J sound in Hebrew, by the way, which is how we know it wasn't Jehovah. Sorry, Jehovah Witnesses. I'm picking on everybody tonight. Sorry, Jehovah Witnesses. It, it's not. It's Yahweh. And most likely, it's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. -H. And we know that from the construct of other words that have Y-H-W-H -H in it, right? You could pretty much tell what's going to follow Q in the English language, right? So the same kind of things can happen in the Hebrew language. At least that's how it's been explained to me. So the Lord, it's literally, the, that it's literally Yahweh. The Lord there is Yahweh. Yahweh, our righteousness. It's actually... The, the God of the burning bush. Tell them that Yahweh has sent you. Tell them I am that I am has sent you. So the one who sits on the throne, the branch that comes out of David is the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, our righteousness. A very strong passage that the Messiah in the Old Testament, that they were looking for the Messiah to be God, God in the flesh. 
In Psalms 45, 6 to 7, God calls him God. This is a really strong statement. It's repeated in Hebrews, where in Hebrews he says, to which of the angels did he say, God, your God has anointed you? And what does Messiah mean? Anointed. And it's another verse I use when I'm talking to people who don't believe in the deity of Jesus. I like to say, here God calls him God, and if God calls him God, and you say he's not God, who should I listen to? Should I listen to God calling him God, or should I listen to you say he's not God? I think I'll listen to God. So here's Psalms 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. He is the Christ, the anointed one, and it is God. Not only did the Bible tell us that there would come someone who would be pre-incarnate, there's other passages that tell us that. All of these passages are telling us the Messiah is deity, and they expected him to be deity. These are Old Testament passages. These aren't New Testament passages. I have one more. God is pierced, in Jerusalem. This is a phenomenal passage. God's speaking to the nation of Israel and he's talking to them about a future day, future from us. In Romans 11, I think it's verse 25, God says that they have been blinded, but not forever. For the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and then they will be saved. It says this, then they will all be saved. So the whole nation of Israel, once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the whole nation of Israel is going to be saved. The restoration of Israel started in the 1900s with restoring the land and then restoring leaders to the land and people to the land and the nation of Israel in 1948 and then more power to the land and they took Jerusalem in, in 67 or 73, I guess 73. And, and it's, just, it's just rolled on from there. But the complete restoration is when they are restored spiritually and they receive Jesus as their Messiah. That is the future of the nation of Israel. Will it be this generation of Jewish people that receive Jesus as their Messiah? I don't know, maybe. Sure seems to me like we can't go on much longer. But I'll be honest with you, it seemed to me that way since I was a teenager, that we couldn't go on much longer. And here we are, a lot of years later, here we are. So in Zechariah 12:10, God speaking. And that's the most important part of understanding this. When you go back to do your homework on this verse, and if you want to look up one of the verses from tonight, look up this one. Go read it in context. Start in, in Zechariah 12, verse 1, and start reading it. And as you do, it's God speaking, God speaking, God speaking. It never changes. God speaks all the way through. And then when he gets to verse 10, he says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication and they will look upon me whom they pierced. And the New King James Version, rightly so, puts me capitalized, meaning it's God speaking. And our question is, when was God pierced in Jerusalem? And in the New Testament, in I think it's Acts chapter 2, the first sermon that's preached after the Holy Spirit is given, that it talks about the spear piercing his side as being the fulfillment of him being pierced in Jerusalem out of Zechariah 12.10. There's an actual Old Testament passage where God says he will be pierced in Jerusalem. God would become a man and would be pierced in Jerusalem. 
And then he says, yes, you will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. So you go back to the beginning and I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. God's going to pour undeserved favor on Jerusalem. And this is the point where they are all going to be saved and they're going to mourn for him. The, the passage goes on to say that there, yeah, it says they, they mourn for him as for an only son. They mourn for him because they didn't recognize him. They didn't see him. They didn't receive him and they have accepted him. All of these verses and others help us to really understand that the Messiah is God and that it was foretold and it shouldn't be any kind of a surprise to us at all. Let's see what I got here with my notes. It shouldn't be any kind of a surprise to us at all. The leaders had closed their eyes to the clear teaching of Scripture because they didn't like it. They looked back, they believed one thing. Now, we're going to get the passage where he rebukes the leaders next week. And they, it was what they had there. They were devouring widows' houses. They loved their positions of power. They loved to be called teachers. They loved to walk around in robes. They loved to look different so they could be... And so they had closed their eyes to the truth of what the Old Testament said because they didn't want what they had to be taken away from. And my question in closing is this. Is there something going on in your life that you want that might affect the way you read Scripture? Are you not honestly reading Scripture because you don't want it to be that way? Do you know what exegesis is? It's not Jesus exiting. Exegesis is the proper way to study the Bible. It's hermeneutics. There's a proper way to study scriptures. Eisegesis is when you approach the scriptures with an idea. You've got an idea and you want to find scriptures to back up your idea. Exegesis is when you read a passage and go, what is this saying so I can know what to believe? Well, I heard a new term a few weeks ago, and I think this guy are living in that new term. Narcissus. You've got exegesis and eisegesis and you've got narcissus, narcissistic. You're reading yourself into every passage. You looking at what you can get out of every passage. It's not just wanting to understand the scriptures and understanding the truth and understanding what's there, but it's being so narcissistic that you're in everything that you read. This is all about me. Well, God does love you and God has chosen you and given you eternity. But all of these things are so amazing. Let's not study scriptures to be able to find out what we want it to say, ignoring what's obviously there. Now, this means that you might believe something that you've been taught. It means you might have grown up in a church that taught you something. And then when you get into Scripture, you go, I don't know if that's true. There are a few positions that I have backed off to neutral, to an I don't know. And I was very strong when I was younger. As a young pastor, I think you're really... You're a little insecure, and I think you're afraid to go, I don't know, because you think people are going to go, well, you don't know, then we're out of here, we're leaving. But the older you get, the more you realize, you know what, a lot of scholars struggle over these things. A lot of really godly men struggle over which one of these is true or not. And there are things that I just have to end up saying, I don't know, maybe I'll find something in the scriptures to help me, but I don't want to be guilty of Jesus. I don't want to be approaching a passage to make it say what I want it to say. I want to know what God means when he says it. All right, we're going to close our, uh, our teaching in prayer, but we're going to remain because I have a statement to make about Roe versus Wade. All right, so let's not have the worship group come up yet. 
Let's wait until after I pray after the statement of Roe versus Wade. All right. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the richness of this amazing truth that the Old Testament foretold that the Messiah would be God, that he would be Yahweh. I, the great I am. No wonder Jesus says seven times in the book of John, I am, because he is the great I am. And the one who has saved us is God who became a man and became anointed. He is God's son as in Psalms chapter two. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So I wanted to take some time to respond to the news that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And I want to say, first of all, exactly what it means. It doesn't only mean that it's going to go back to the states. There's state decisions now. And some of the states, I don't know what, maybe 10, somewhere between 10 and 15 states are going to make it illegal. You will not be able to get this procedure. I don't want this scrubbed from uh, the social media networks. So I'm using the word the procedure instead of the word. All right. So um, it doesn't mean it's just got to go back to the state. So there are going to be 12, 13, 14 states, whatever it ends up being, where the procedure is not legal. Then there are going to be other states, California, Oregon, New York, and they're going to try to push the envelope. They would love for a woman to be able. This is I'm not. There are those. I want to make sure I'm accurate when I say this. There are those in those states who would love to be able to take the life of a child after it is born, if it is unwanted. And that will tell you where they are. There are going to be these, these different positions. But the main thing is that it goes back to the legislator. It goes back to Congress and it goes back to the Senate. They have had 50 years of a weak court case that they have hid behind and they use their rhetoric behind it. My body, my choice. It's a, it's a decision between me and my doctor. These, this is rhetoric that doesn't work when you have to argue it. You can scream it behind a position. You can scream it so no one can argue with you. But as soon as you go, my body, my choice, you go, eh, let's talk. Because I used to be in my mom's womb, but I'm a different body than what she's got. It's really not your body. That's rhetoric. Your doctor's decision. Can you take your child into a doctor's office, close the door and say, I think it'd be better off for him if he was dead. And you and your doctor get to make that decision behind closed doors. You get to make those kind of decisions. The reason they've hidden behind the court case and are so upset that it's been overturned is because they now have to make legislation about it and do it. You've got the House and the Senate right now. The majority of them believe in it. Do it. Make the argument. But when you do that, you've got to define terms. You have to define life. They, in a court case, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to define life. They just said, we rule for them. Now you've got to define, when does life start? You have to define, is this a human? Is a, is a, is a fetus inside of the womb of a woman a human? And if they are humans, do they have human rights? And have we been so tragically violating human rights for 50 years in the United States? In what is, there's only, I'm going to say six or seven countries that have as liberal pro-procedure as the United States has. Only six or seven in the world. Almost all of Europe has restrictions after certain weeks. You can't do it after certain weeks. And Europe is fine. 
Europe is the, is the bastion where the progressives want the United States to be like Europe. But Europe doesn't have the ability to on-demand get this procedure. And they're okay. But now that we are all of a sudden going to have it not on demand in the United States, we're not going to be okay. There's all kinds of problems. And so they turn to rhetoric and fear-mongering. And you may have heard this one, that now women that need DNC are going to die because it's illegal to get a DNC. A DNC is the actual procedure that this procedure uses to do, to make what happens, happens. As if there's going to be a woman that has a baby die in her womb, tragically, and then they can't do a DNC. So the woman would have the baby basically infect her and she would die as well. So this is what they're telling people. And I've had two people tell me this so far. The horrible tragedy about this thing now is that women that need to have a DNC won't be able to get it or that need this procedure will not be able to get it because the dead baby will just be inside of them. You really think that? I mean, they can't get people outraged when they tell them it's just gone back to the States. That doesn't get people outraged enough. Oh, you mean people are still going to be able to go get them? Yeah, get in the plane, go over there, go get it. Do you mean that's not outrageous enough? So they have to make outrageous claims. And that's what we're going to continue to hear. They're going to make, they're going to outlaw transgender. They're going to outlaw gay marriage. This has nothing to do with those. And they're, and they're, and they're going to try to do that. This is the issue of our day. There have been tens of millions of babies that have lost their life many of them late term and it's the issue of our day and a lot of people would say if I was around during the Holocaust I would have got involved do you know that in the early 1800s that slavery was was popular in the United States that 50% of the population believed in slavery you might have been able to be voted in by the population chattel slavery antebellum slavery is one of the worst kind of slaveries this world has ever seen and it was legal in the United States for over 75 years after we became a nation. Just because there's a law, it had been the precedent, it had been the law for 75 years. They say it's been the law for 50 years. Does that make it right? Was slavery right because it had been the law for 75 years? No, slavery was horrible and it was awful and it was one of the worst kinds that they could. And interestingly enough, it denied their human rights just as the unborn have their human rights denied from them. It's like the United States keeps repeating the same mistake over and over again. And I'm sorry that this issue is political, but I am not interested in it because it's political. I am interested in it because it's the biggest travesty of our day. When I was 19 years old, I, I found out that there was a position open on Right to Life speaker board. Right to Life is the Catholic organization um, that fought against this procedure. And I was, I, I, I went through this whole speaker process and I became on their speaker board. They wanted someone young who would go into the schools and who would debate Planned Parenthood in the schools. So I went in and usually it wasn't a debate. There were a few times it was where we would both give our presentations and then kind of have to debate each other. But most often I had to go first and then they got to get up and talk bad about what I said. That's most often how it worked. This is all the way back in the eighties, right? Um, the late 70s and the early 80s. And this is only six years after Roe v. Wade that I'm doing this. So I learned that I would have to give my point and then go, you're going to hear them say this. So this is the truth to their response. So I, I put the, what they were going to say and the responses into my presentation. But I still remember back in those days, even people getting furious with me 
in the classroom, kids, just absolutely getting furious with me as I went in to share it. So this is something long-term that I've been invested in. If you've gone to Calvary for very long, then you know periodically I will talk about this. I'll talk about supporting uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center. We support Hands of Hope. We'll talk about supporting young women who are in crisis. And yes, it is a tragedy that some women get pregnant and families can't afford it. Yes, that's a tragedy. Yes, it's a tragedy that teenagers get pregnant. Yes, it's a tragedy that there's something from rape and incest. And, and rape, incest, and the health of the mother is a small percentage, a very small percentage of what we're talking about here. So even if you take those out, who knows once we debate it all and it just all gets shaken out, whether those will be allowed or not, but they immediately want to tell you when, when they tell you, hey, let's, let's talk about whether or not that's a life. Let's talk about whether they've got human rights. Immediately, what if they're raped? They immediately go to the extreme. That's what they do to try to get people fired up. And uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that because somebody had something bad happen to them, that having this procedure should be legal. Somebody brought up, well, what about the foster care? It's overrun now. What's going to happen to it now? It's going to be even more overrun. That's a problem. But it doesn't mean that problem is solved by killing unborn babies. That seems to me to be, there's, uh, there should be other things to solve that problem. And we as Christians should step up. And we've said that for years. Now, I've got a biblical case ready to go. I'm not going to do it. But I, I've got, um, I did a, something on YouTube and Facebook today where I did a thoughtful response to Roe versus Wade. And I went over the scriptures that talk about us being formed in the womb and God knowing us in the womb and God planning for us in the womb. There's all of these Old Testament scriptures that talk to us about what's going on in the womb. Just, I'm, I'm just going to talk about a couple of verses that they use. There's one in Exodus, and um, it says that if two men are fighting, it's Exodus 21, 22. If men are fighting and they hurt a woman with child and she gives birth prematurely, some versions say miscarriage. But there's no Hebrew word for the procedure, okay? So if she gives birth prematurely, it's probably right. And no harm follows, meaning the woman gets hit by one of the men and the, the baby is born and survives, then no, nothing, no harm follows. He shall surely be punished according to the woman's husband imposes on him. So the woman's husband can say, you got to pay us this much because the baby was born prematurely, but it's okay. But if there's harm that follows, it goes on to say, than an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Also, the Bible says that if, if a man kills a man, then he shall be put to death. This is the Old Testament law because he has killed someone in the image of God. And all of these babies are made in the image of God. Let me give you one more verse that they used to fight against this. And this was President Clinton's argument for the procedure. He said that when he made Adam, and some preacher had told him this, when God made Adam, he breathed into him and gave him life. And therefore, you don't have life until you breathe. So the baby inside the womb, until they actually come out and breathe, they are not alive. Here's the problem with that. And it's easy to think through. God takes Adam. He's inanimate. He's just, a, he's, he's just flesh and blown. He's just dead. He's inanimate. The baby isn't dead. And he breathes into him. And that's passed on through birth. He does... He doesn't breathe into every person to give them life. It happens through the process of conception and birth that you get life. And the argument that it's life comes back to the side that we should be against it. 
listen, if the question is, this is the last thing I'm going to say. I could say a lot more and I want to, but I won't. Um, if the question is, is this a life or not? Is this a life or not? I, I, I don't know. I don't think it is. I think it is. I don't think it is. Shouldn't we err on the side of caution if we're talking about a human life with human rights? What if somebody would have chosen to take away your human rights before you were born? How come our laws are so inconsistent? How come if a drunk driver hits a car, kills a woman who's pregnant, he gets charged with two, two manslaughter charges? But a woman can go and take the life of that same child and it's not called anything except choice today. There's so many, and these are the kind of things that are gonna come into the legislation and they're gonna have to make decisions about it. This, I, I said in, in the YouTube statement, I'm not in glee over this. When I heard that it had been overturned, I had a very satisfied feeling. And the reason I had a very satisfied feeling was because almost, a, almost a, an awestruck feeling is because over the years, if the Lord tarries, tens of millions of babies are going to be saved because this thing's overturned. Because I don't think they'll be able, because just like slavery was wrong and they couldn't argue that in the courts, I don't think this can be argued in the courts. I don't think they're going to be able to come to a decision on honest one about life and about the fetus, whether or not it's human. What do you say? It's not human? Five minutes before it's born and then it becomes human five minutes afterwards? If it's not human, what is it? A puppy in your belly until it's born a human? It's just so nonsensical. And I don't think it's going to happen. I want them to try. If it's going to be the law of our land, and this is what we said all along about Roe versus Wade, if it's going to be the law of our land, let it be a law. Let it be one that the Congress wrote, that the Senate ratified and the president signed. And if you've got enough in, your, in, the, uh, in the Congress and the Senate and the presidency, you can, you can make it the Constitution. You can make it a constitutional right. If you've got enough, then do it. If they're going to murder babies, I'll get strong at this point. If they're going to murder babies, then make it be the law of the land. Don't hide behind some court case. And, and some weak court case, which Ruth Gator Binzer, Ruth, she said <laughs> that it was a weak case. It's a weak case. They hid behind it. Make it a law. Then we can stand up and fight that. Then we know exactly what we're fighting. Make it a law. Make it the law of your states. Pass your laws. Tell it what it is. Tell us what it is. Put your definition of what they are, of what you're destroying. All right, I'm done. Enough. So I want to pray one more time. We're going to have the music group come out. And um, actually, let's not. Let's just not have the music group come out. I'm sorry, but I used your time. I'll repay you some, someday. <laughs> Would you stand with me? Let me pray for you. And, and, and let's pray for this. And um, I want to do something a little different with this prayer. We always close our eyes. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about closing your eyes when you pray. We close our eyes because it helps us with distractions. People are looking around. I've had friends that pray with their eyes open. When I'm praying, I look up at them, look, I'm looking around, I'm like, it's weird. But um, maybe for some obvious reasons, I want us to have our eyes open when we pray right now. <laughs> All right. So again, just, just, just go before the Lord and, and, and agree with me as I pray. Father, I want to lift up this whole issue of Roe v. Wade. I want to thank you that this law has been overturned. I want to thank you for the lives that will be saved. And I pray as it goes back to the states that we would not surrender as if now we've won because we didn't win anything. All we did was rescue lives, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to continue on in this battle until like slavery, there is no state in our union that says it's legal.
it is illegal and you cannot take away the human right of that unborn child. And I pray that we would stick with that until the very end. I also pray, Lord, that anyone in here who needs to make a commitment to you would make that commitment or online that they would make the commitment to you. And um, we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.